Our text comes from Genesis chapter 9, verse 20 to 10, 32. If you look in the bulletin, actually, verses 20 to 26 have been cut out, but I will be still reading them. Um, and so if you read along, it goes from 9.20 and it jumps to 10.1. Um, it was just a little technological hiccup. But I'll be reading the whole passage regardless. And, uh, and so hopefully you can follow along. So here's chapter 9, verse 20 to 10.32. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers." He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tent of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rafath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elsha, Tarshish, Kitim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with their own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabetika. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erek, Akkad, Akalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Reboth-ir, Kalah, and Rasen between Nineveh and Kalah, that is, the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Nephotim, Pathrusim, Kasuhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arkashud, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arkashud fathered Shalah, and Shalah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, the name of the one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Choktan. Choktan fathered Amodad, Selefet, Hazarmafet, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havila, and Jobab. 
All these were the sons of Joktan, the territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to this abstract text in which we read a lot of names, but we know that this is in your word, and we know that there is power in your word. So we pray that as your word is preached and as your people listen to your word, may they be edified, may they be transformed, and may they look to you to understand what it is that you desire from us and what it is that we are to learn about who you are. Thank you, God, for your scripture. We thank you, God, for your word, and we thank you, God, for your people. Be with us as the word is preached and as the word begins to change our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have another genealogy. I did my best. I practiced. I was actually more nervous reading the genealogies than I am <laughs> preaching my sermon. But we got through it, and, you know, again, we're tempted to come to this genealogy and say, what's the point? Um, what, what is the purpose of all this? And there is a point, and there is a purpose to all these texts. And again, on the simple level, this just points to which genealogy Jesus comes from. If you follow the line of Shem, which is the blessed one, you find that Jesus is from the line of Shem. He is the blessed one. He is from which the promise of God is fulfilled, in which everybody comes to receive the blessing of the world. But are there other reasons why all these names are here? And I would say yes. There are important theological reasons why all these names are here. And if you are following, you would actually notice that these names are actually kind of familiar. They will actually come up again throughout Scripture and throughout the Bible. And if you, if you like to do this, read through the Bible. If you see any clan or nation that comes up, you could usually find the roots back in this genealogy. So what is God doing? He is laying out for us human history. He is laying out the foundations of the human narrative and what is to come. God is laying out how he is going to unfold history through what lines and through what people and what is going to happen. This genealogy does tell a very interesting story. And not only this genealogy, but this genealogy comes right after the great covenant, the great promise that is given to Noah. So what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to look at that episode with Noah where he curses his sons and then I'm going to go into why the names of the sons are so important and we are going to see what we are to learn about God and what duty God still requires of man. So this text is foundational to the Christian faith and it helps shape our understanding of how we are to live our lives today. I know it doesn't seem like it but it's very important in guiding us in the Christian life today and how God wants his people to act. First, we are going to see that God in his proclamation to Noah and his son is setting the stage for the world. 
If you remember, right after when Noah got out of the flood, if you were here with us last week, Pastor David told us about the great covenant Noah made with Noah and all of creation. God was going to make a covenant with Noah, promising that he would not destroy the earth with another flood. But within that covenant, God set some parameters for Noah. He gave him some rules. He gave him some things to abide by. And if we look closely, Noah was given the same tasks as Adam. And it's really important to see this. What is happening between Noah and God after the flood is almost, almost the same thing what is occurring in the Garden of Eden. The language is the same. Be fruitful and multiply. The earth is in your, everything on this planet you are able to eat. You are to uphold life. And this is where it's a little bit different. Here he tells Noah that you are to uphold life, uphold justice. There will be no senseless murder in this world. This covenant that God is making with Noah is another covenant of works. This is the duty that is required by all of Noah and his sons. And they are to do these things. They are to be fruitful and multiply. They are to eat the food of the garden. And they are to uphold justice and not senselessly murder other people. And so as we look at this covenant and as God is making this covenant to Noah, we begin to understand that this has far-reaching implications. Because what we realize, this covenant is actually not just made with Noah and his sons. Who does God make this covenant with? Verse nine, chapter 9, verse 8, it's not in your passage today, but if you have your Bible, you should look at it. Because here we see the parties of the covenant. 9.8, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. This covenant that God makes with Noah is meant for everybody. Everybody that comes after Noah. If you believe that from this one family the whole world was populated, then you have to believe that this covenant of works is mandatory on all of humanity. This covenant of works that we see in Noah and God is basically the foundation of human rights. If you think about it, every human being, this is not a Christian or non-Christian thing. This is a human thing. When you have the right to life and you have the right to be fruitful and multiply, that is a human right. When you have the right to eat food, that is a fundamental human right. That is not a special privilege for anybody. When we uphold justice and not murder people senselessly, that is a human right, not just a Christian right or a chosen people right. This is an important thing we must understand and realize. Here in this covenant lies pretty much the foundation of why we treat other human beings with dignity. 
Here God reminds us that we are all made in the image of God and that everyone that flows from Noah will be under this covenant and must abide by it. So you saw all those names I read? Every single one of those names I read is an offspring of Noah and thus is under that covenant of works and is required to uphold it. And this is not a small theological truth in our day and age. I've been reading a book called Sapiens, A Brief Human History of Humankind. The author is Yuval Noah Hurari. This book is popular. I found this book at Costco. That's how popular this book is. You know you are a bestseller when you are at Costco. And it was interesting because this book is not a Harry Potter young adult book. It is making an argument for human history, and he is a firm believer in evolution. Firm believer. He's an Israeli scholar, and he says there is no God. Big Bang is true. Evolution is correct. Now, I encourage you guys to study all those things, but I would caution you that a wholesale adoption of evolution will ultimately lead you to the conclusion that this professor comes to. And it's this. Here in one of his books, he says this, according to the science of biology, people were not created. They have evolved. And, this, and they certainly did not evolve to be equal. The idea of equality is inextricably intertwined with the idea of creation. He believes the idea of a human right, of human dignity, is a myth. As much of a myth as the idea of creation. Now, that doesn't mean he's against human rights. I mean, he would never say that. But he does mean we have to call it for what it is. It is a belief or a myth that the people have chosen to believe in because it increases our chances of living. That is the only reason we should adopt the idea of equality. So you see this concept of every human being coming from Noah, every nation coming from Noah, holds important ideas about how we are to think of other human beings and how we are to treat other human beings. This is an important thing that we must all consider. Today, you may not be Christian and you may not believe in the creation story and you may be here just to check out Christianity. And you may be a person who believes in evolution. And I'm, I'm not here to change your mind, but I would say and challenge you that there are far-reaching implications of that mode of thought. And we have to deeply consider those thoughts and where it leads to. It's amazing our country more and more as it becomes more quote-unquote scientific and loves rational thought and loves logic and loves all these things. More and more they begin to also love human rights. They feel that justice is not served, that there's so much inequality in the world, but yet why they're probably so frustrated is because there is a paradox in their thinking. Actually, it's stronger than a paradox, a contradiction. 
And so what we learn from, again, this scene of creation is the human story. That God and all of human history will be bound by this law in which human dignity is upheld and which all nations must, they must follow. And so as God sets that up, he also sets another stage. And a stage in which Christians are more not more, have keen interest At this same time as God sets up this stage with Noah, he also sets up the stage of redemptive history. What we see in the beginning, what I read for you, is the covenant of works. But what we see when Noah blesses and curses his son is something a little different from what we saw in chapter 9, verse 8. And I want to go now into verse 20 and 26 and explain what actually happened in this narrative. What we see is that Noah begins to toil, begins to toil in the ground. He begins to be a man of the soil. And so effectively, where is Noah? He is in a garden. He has been given the covenant of works. He's been given the commands, and now he is going to go and garden and subdue the land. He is going to continue the task of Adam. And so he makes some wine. Good enough. And as he makes some wine, we see sin rear its ugly head again. Noah drinks the wine, becomes drunk, and lays down naked, uncovered, in the privacy of his own tent. But still the less he sins by abusing this substance. And then Ham, his youngest son, comes in. He sees his dad and then goes tells his brother. Now, it may seem like that this was innocent enough, that Ham simply came and peeked and said, whoa, dad drank too much and told his brothers, ha-ha, this is funny. But with all the Jewish literature out there, it shows us that what Sam, not Sam, Ham, what Ham did was something sinful, that he gazed upon his father. And this verb, though we are not sure, it is probably the same verb that is oftentimes used in the Song of Solomon. That type of gaze he gave and looked upon with his father. We don't know for sure, but we know that the way Shem and Japheth treat their father by not looking at the nakedness of the father, by taking the clothes and making extreme measures not to look at his father, we show the carelessness of Ham contrasted with the carefulness of the brothers. And therefore, we know that Ham did something terribly wrong and that he sinned and that the curse that was about to come upon him was justified. Again, this scene that should take us right back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve are gardening the land. They're taking care of everything. And then the serpent comes and causes Adam and Eve to sin. Their Lord comes and then puts a blessing and a curse upon man. He curses the serpent, but then says to Eve and Adam that there will, they will be blessed because their offspring will bring blessings to the earth. In that same vein, as Noah, awa Noah wakes up 
and Noah goes to his sons and understands what has happened, he does the same thing that God does to Adam and Eve, and he curses and blesses the offspring. Verse 24 and 25, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. It is the same judgment that comes in Genesis 3.15. There is going to be a struggle between the line of Shem and the line of Ham. But ultimately, the line of Ham will be cursed and they will fall. And that Shem's line will prove to be the line of great blessing, and that Japheth will also partake in that blessing. And so when we go to chapter 10, we see who these offspring are. What comes from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then hopefully from there I'll explain how everything plays out in biblical history. When we go to the line of Shem, that's where we start, because Shem is the one that is blessed. He is the first one. And what we see in Genesis chapter 10, 21 is this, to Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. Eber has special attention in this lineage. And it's most likely because his name is where we get the name Hebrews from. So here we see that Eber gives birth to two sons, Joktan and Peleg, and we see that there is a separation there. And what we notice is that Joktan's line is continued on and talked about, but Peleg's line is not. We'll find out in the next chapter, but not today, but we'll find out in Peleg, Peleg's line is the line in which Abraham comes from. Peleg is the blessed line in which the Hebrews come from. So the blessed line, we find out quickly and early on, it's the Israelites. It's Abraham. They are the blessed line of faith. And then we look at Ham's line. And there's a lot of people that we recognize in Ham's line. Ham's line is by far the most impressive, quote-unquote, resume of all. From Ham comes Egypt, Babel, which is the precursor to Babylon, Assyria, and all sorts of other empires come from Ham. And we see continually throughout that Shem and Ham will duke it out, that these countries will duke it out on the stage of not history per se, but salvation history. The promise of the seed is at stake, and what Ham, Ham's line is continually trying to do is destroy the line of Shem. Where do we first meet the Israelites? In Egypt. What line is Egypt from? Ham. Then Israelites will go to the promised land, which is occupied by whom? The Canaanites. Canaan is the son that was cursed. And then after Israel comes into Canaan and wipes out everybody, then we see in the book of Judges, they are fighting with Kasuhim the Philistines from which they come. And then after that, we see Nimrod who gives birth to Babel, who gives birth to Babylon, which will ultimately take over Israel and destroy the first temple. 
And here with the empire of Babylon, we almost see the eradication of the line of Shem. But we see that God remains faithful and that Shem's line continues on. And continues on to give birth to Jesus. The whole Old Testament is found in this one genealogy. The battles that will take place, the battles that will go on, the continual battle that will proceed after. And the blessing finally comes when Jesus Christ comes. It is that fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 that comes. That an offspring, that one individual would come and bless the whole line of Shem. And that Ham's line would be destroyed. And then you think, thinking from all of this, what about Japheth? What is his blessing all about? Well, if you look at Japheth's blessing, it's kind of a weird one. It says, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And who is Japheth? If you understand and follow the line of Japheth, we may not understand, realize a lot of these names. It's Gomer and Javan. And Javan is the more important one because Javan is the eventual place of Greece and Rome. So what is God doing when he is giving these blessings and these curses? I mean, what is Noah doing but God actually doing through this prophecy? He's using Japheth as a placeholder. This blessing is not only going to be for Israel. This blessing was always going to be meant for the whole entire world. Japheth, interesting, interestingly enough, never really comes back into the Old Testament. Anytime the line of Japheth comes and is talked about, it is in reference to the outer skirts of the world. We don't really know. Those are the coastland people. We don't really deal with them. I'm, when when, when um, Jonah was fleeing, he says, I'm going to flee so far away, I'm going to go to Tarshish, which is the line of Japheth. I'm going to go far away from here to the ends of the earth. That is whom Japheth refers to in the Old Testament. So the blessing of Japheth truly, truly comes when Jesus Christ comes back. Japheth is a place marker. First, what happens is this. God starts off as the God of the universe, and then he narrows it down to Israel and Ham, and he sees the epic battle that's going to take place in salvation history. And then finally, when Jesus comes, he opens it wide up once again. God's whole plan the whole time was not to save just one nation. His plan always, since Noah, since Adam, was to save the whole entire world. And all the New Testament writers picked up on this. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 28 says this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. And the Apostle John comes in and says, The blessings of Japheth are true, and they are coming to fruition now. For God did not just come to save the line of Shem, but what does John chapter 3, verse 16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
Jesus knew that his purpose was not to just come for one nation and battle just one nation. He understood that his whole purpose was to save the entire world. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When Jesus Christ finally came, he did not only bring blessings, but he also brought power to break the curse. When Jesus Christ came, he came not only to fulfill the line of Shem, but to save the whole entire world, to make sure Japheth comes in to the tent. And he even came to save Ham, the line of Ham. And that's why Paul is able to say now in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Yes, week in and week out, we emphasize that Jesus came and conquered sin and death, but sometimes we forget the magnitude in which he came not just for one particular people, but for the whole entire world he came for. The whole entire world. And that is why when we read the book of Acts, and see, this is why it's so important. When we read the book of Acts, who are the three people that are highlighted immediately? Which three people are converted? The Ethiopian eunuch, which is from the line of Ham. The Apostle Paul, which is from the line of Shem, and Cornelius, the Italian cohort, which finally comes to fruition and is from the line of Japheth. You see, this genealogy all along shows God's plan to be the ruler of the whole world. His whole plan to govern the whole entire history of humankind. It was always meant for everybody. And to this day, Jesus comes and goes out into every nation, building his church, collecting and gathering. And we see a glimpse of that vision in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's plan was always for the world. God's plan was always for every person, tribe, and nation. God always intended to always intended to come back and save everybody. God wants the whole world to worship him. He doesn't just want one nation to worship him. He doesn't just want one people to worship him. He wants all of his creation to come and worship him. He wants his name cried out from every single language, from every single tribe 
from every single type of person. So what now? What do we do with all this information? In light of recent events, I thought it was very interesting that this text would come out. In light of recent events, we have seen that there is growing partiality, growing racism, growing hatred for other people because of their ethnicity or because of their race or sometimes even because of their gender. And I think it is important that when Scripture talks about evil sins, it is my duty to talk about the sins that we face today. We do need to talk about partiality and more specifically about racism. And usually when the topic of racism comes out, there are three types of people that pop up. The first one is people who are hurt by racism. They have taken on the full brunt of it. Second are the people who promote racism or nationalism. And third are the people who want to be apathetic to it. I'd like this time to address all three very quickly. First, for those who are hurt by racism, I hope this genealogy brings you great comfort and joy. I hope the vision of Revelation chapter 7 in which Jesus desired every single person there to bring of great comfort for you. We do live in an evil and sinful world, and we know that there has been much I hope you would continue to look to heaven. I hope you would continue to look at this picture and see that there is hope and that there is a future. That though you may be discouraged here and on this earth, and I wish I could say it all go away, it probably won't, I do want you to look at Jesus. And I want you to look at his people, the people that he's gathering. And I hope that you're comforted by that that you will not be alone in heaven, that there will be others like you, but there will also be others who are not like you, and we will praise God for that. So if you have been hurt by racism, take comfort in the knowledge that Jesus died to ensure that you, that you would be in his glorious kingdom. Then there are those who promote racism and nationalism. You might be from a good place and you might be thinking that it's all right, but the only thing I have to say to you is that you must repent now. There is no way to justify that feeling. There is no way to say that it's okay. There's just no way around it. Not only is racism a form of hatred and partiality, which is condemned explicitly in the book of James and in the book of John, but you also have to realize that nationalism and racism goes against Jesus Christ. It goes against the very will of Jesus Christ. I hope I have made it clear by now that the intention of God and the intention of Jesus was always to save every person in every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Therefore, if you think that you can cut off a nation, that you can cut off a type of person, that you can cut off a type of individual, 
then you go up against Jesus himself. You do not do the bidding of Jesus, but you do the bidding of Satan himself. This is not something that we need to play around with or try to justify. It is something that we must get rid of, that we all need to get rid of. Remember, David, David reminded us last week that sin, we always think sin is out there, but sin is clear, clearly in all our hearts. But you must, if you are promoting it, if you are okay with it, you must repent now and ask for forgiveness for your soul. Then the third party, there are those who ignore racism. And this is one I have struggled with. Racism is such a difficult topic to deal with. There's so many nuances. There's so many things to consider. There's blatant racism. There's subtle racism. There's racism. I didn't mean to be racist, but you are racist. There's so many levels of racism, and it's so tiring most of the times. But that's what sin is. Sin is tiring. Sin is tiring. Sin is difficult, and we can't just allow it to grow and to allow it to become part of the culture or be part of our church or anything like that. First, we need to get rid of it within our church. First, confess that we probably deal with it. Then engage with other people and talk about it. We're going to offend people. We're going to make people feel uncomfortable. But it's worth it because we get rid of sin. And once we get rid of the sin and racism, can't you see that the gospel opens up? That people are able to see Jesus. And that Jesus wants all those people. You can see Jesus as a greedy, greedy person. He wants all types of people in his kingdom. And if we allow this sin that inhibits the evangelism of the whole world, then we impede the great commission in which the whole church has been called to. Ending racism is not the end-all, with-all of the church. But it definitely is a significant part of the church. If people cannot see Jesus because all they can see is the hatred, that exudes from Christians, from exudes from people who claim that they are Christian, then we must do everything in our power to rid ourselves of that notion so that the gospel may shine, that Jesus may be proclaimed, and that people would come into heaven, and that our home that is seen in Revelation 7 will be the picture, will be the home, that Jesus finally gathers. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would bless us, that you would guide us, that all glory and honor would be given unto your name. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.